We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up to 1 Corinthians 15. We've been in this um, in the series for a while in the book, nearing our, our end of the book now. Um, but we're going to be able to spend some weeks on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, you can be in prayer for Craig. He was scheduled to preach this morning. As you can see, he's not preaching this morning. I am preaching this morning. He is sick, um, something like the flu or something similar. Um, so I'm privileged to be able to give the message this morning. But please pray for him. No stuff is going around, but pray for his health and that no one else in his family gets it. And for I know that, again, things are going around. So just continue to pray for the health, physical, of course, always spiritual, but physical health of our body as well. So we're going to be, as I said, in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. All right, you can follow along with me as I read from the scriptures in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. It says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God That is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you reveal yourself to us and your plan of salvation through Christ your Son, through your word. This is something that you were in no uh, obligation to do but you have done for us because of your grace. And that is that grace that is communicated to us through the gospel on which uh, the gospel rests on the resurrection, Lord. And then help us this morning as we, as we read and study your word and have it preached, Lord, to understand more about who you are and more about the gospel, more about the resurrection and what it means for us now as we live here on this earth as your ambassadors. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. What you place your hope in will set the direction of your life. I'm going to say that again. What you place your hope in will set the direction of your life. This and the following couple sentences here from a book by a devotional book by Paul Tripp. He goes on to say, Whether you know it or not, your path, your life path is directed by hope. Whether it's hope in a philosophy, a person, a dream, a location, or something else, your life will be shaped by what 
you place your hope in. So I ask you today, and I ask all of us, what is your hope in? I wanted to take just a moment, just a moment of quiet, just for you to consider that question before the Lord. Ask him to help you reveal where your hope is. Just take a few seconds just to think about that. In many ways, 1 Corinthians is a case study in misplaced hope. Their divisions that we saw show that they place some of their hope in what group they are in. Were they in the in-group with the cool kids? Their sexual impurity displaced, um, showed displaced hope, that they had a hope in instant gratification. Their disputes over personal freedom that were connected with food and their improper use of spiritual gifts and disordered gathering for worship display that they hoped often in self-satisfaction or self-fulfillment. The Corinthians, though believers, were failing to live daily in the new reality of Jesus' resurrection. Their hope, in large part, was not in the gospel, not in the resurrection. That was still being worked out among them. And we often are like the Corinthians. Our life path is directed by hope. And sometimes that hope, and sometimes that shows itself in some negative ways. And this passage challenges us in that we often fail to live daily in the new reality of Jesus' resurrection. In that hope. Although most of us here are believers, sometimes Jesus' resurrection doesn't impact us moment by moment as it should. But in our passage today, we'll see that through the resurrection, the gospel opens to us a new reality. This new reality calls us to to do four things that we'll see from the text. Because of the new reality of the resurrection, we are to remind ourselves of the gospel. We're to seek to constantly improve our understanding of the gospel We are to believe as though we have personally and physically seen the resurrected Lord. And then finally, we are to work hard, motivated by grace. So the first one of those, that because of the resurrection, we are to remind ourselves daily of the gospel. One of the most significant words in this passage is the word remind in verse 1. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. Paul is writing to a church, a body of believers, but a young church. A church that believes, but oftentimes that belief doesn't shape daily choices and, and behavior as much as it should. But what will shape and mature them? It's the gospel, the good news of who Christ is and what he has done through his life, death, and resurrection. Trying harder won't really change them. Legalism, strictly trying to obey the laws and earn God's favor in that way, won't change them. Through the message of the gospel, we come to faith, and the gospel is what matures us in faith. We never move beyond our need of the gospel. Throughout the letter, Paul has displayed how the gospel applies to every difficulty that the church in Corinth faced. Now he aims at the linchpin of the gospel, which is the resurrection. 
as Paul begins to conclude the letter, he spends ample time on the resurrection as a means to tie up everything that he has instructed them in. As we began the book of 1 Corinthians, we watched the Bible Project video, which gives a very helpful overview of the whole book. I would encourage you, if you have the opportunity, to go back and to watch that video, um, just to be reminded of the book as a whole and how it all ties together. If you simply search online, 1 Corinthians Bible Project, the video should pop right up, but it's really helpful. And the authors of that video say the gospel is an announcement about Jesus that opens up a whole new reality. The gospel is an announcement about Jesus that opens up a whole new reality. And the gospel hinges on the resurrection. We see this from the scriptures themselves. Um, we didn't read this passage or this scripture, but later in verse 14 in the same, same book, chapter 15, same chapter, he says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. This whole new reality of the gospel, because of the resurrection, is to be reflected in the Corinthians individually and corporately. In chapters 1 through 4, there were divisions in the church that Paul addressed. The new reality of the gospel is the reason for unity. Our hope doesn't have to be that we are accepted by others since the gospel assures us of our adoption and acceptance and our acceptance to God. Chapters 5 through 7 were about sexual purity. The gospel, which hinges on the resurrection, is the reason for sexual integrity. Though we will receive new resurrected bodies, what we do now in the body matters, and we are called to be holy as he is holy. Chapters 8 through 10 were about how to exercise our freedom in Christ. Then chapters 11 through 14 were about how we act when we were gathered together for worship, including the use of spiritual gifts. The Corinthians were often placing self-love above love of God and others. In regard to both of these issues, food and gathered worship, the gospel gives us power to love others more than ourselves. But all this hinges on the resurrection. So the resurrection is of supreme importance. That's why Paul spends so much time on it here in chapter 15. But apparently there were some in Corinth who did not believe in the bodily resurrection of the dead. That's a big deal because, as Paul says in verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, then even Christ has not been raised. So in chapter 15, Paul begins by speaking to Christ's resurrection, and then the resurrection of the dead, and then specifically the resurrection of the physical body. So that's a bit of an overview just to help us see how chapter 15 ties into the rest of the letter. But as we turn back towards our specific text, Verses 1 and 2 show us something very important to understand about salvation. And that is that while on earth our salvation is past, has past, present, and future aspects all at the same time. So we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. They received the gospel. It says that they stood in it. Yet Paul says about the gospel, "...and by which you are being saved." If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So regarding the past, Scripture speaks of us being predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Romans 8, 28. 
and that when we are united to Christ by faith, we have been justified. So in that sense, we have been saved, the past aspect. But this scripture, as well as 1 Corinthians 1.18, uses the phrase being saved to point to work that God is doing now. The work that he is doing now has to do with our sanctification, which is becoming more like Jesus, as his spirit indwells us. And it has to do with our perseverance. We know that those that God brings to himself, he will never cast out. John 6, 37. By his grace, he causes us to hold fast to the word preached to us and persevere in faith. So we are being saved, the present aspect. And scripture also speaks of a future aspect of salvation. Romans 5, 9 says that we will be saved from his wrath. And many places in scripture, including later in chapter 15, speak of the future glorification of the body. In that sense, we will be saved when we receive the glorified body that he has for us. So Paul reminds them of the gospel because it is through the gospel that they are being saved. Though they have been justified, they're continuing to be made holy and persevere in faith through the gospel. So we see from these verses and really all throughout the letter that we must remind ourselves of the gospel. We're continuing to, as this letter says right here, we're continuing to be saved through the gospel. We are weak and fickle and frail people. The gospel is not just for initial faith. It is for our daily faith and sanctification. That is why Jesus said in Matthew 4, 4, he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The central message of the word, the entire Bible from first to last, is the gospel. We need to rehearse the gospel together weekly, which is what we do when we gather together. And we need it to do it daily in worship, in private worship. The word of the gospel is our daily bread. We desperately need that daily bread. We need to remind ourselves of the gospel. So I'd ask you, do you remind yourself of the gospel daily? And if so, how? How do you do that? And how can you improve in this regard if you are doing that? B.B. Warfield said, There's nothing in us or done by us at any stage of our earthly development because of which we are acceptable to God. We must always be accepted for Christ's sake or we can, cannot ever be accepted at all. So that's the gospel, that we are accepted because of Christ. We're accepted by God because of Christ. We need to be reminded of that daily. He goes on to say, this is not true of us only when we first believe. It is just as true after we have believed. So do you live each day with the realization and peace that you are accepted fully only because of Christ? You can't be good enough. You can't do good enough. In Christ, we are fully accepted, fully redeemed, fully being made, being made new daily. Another way to remind yourself of the gospel is just scripture reading and quiet time. Is that a daily thing for you, that you have moments in God's word, asking God to speak to you through his word and help you know and understand yourself and your own sin and your need for salvation and help you see who Christ is 
the redemption that he offers us. And I would, I would echo, do you have kind of a bread and butter, I would say, gospel verse? For you, a verse that encapsulates the gospel, that reminds you of the gospel. I know that um, for many of us, and it's a good verse, John 3.16 is one of those. Um, I think 2 Corinthians 5.21 is also a great one of those, which says, um, For he who knew no sin became sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that's a great one as well. Songs about God, his character, and salvation. Um, I encourage you to just think critically about what, what you listen to, even Christian music, because sometimes it can be very man-centered, where it's more about us than about God. But let's, let's by and large, try to keep our eyes and our hearts focused on him. So um, really think about what you're listening to, and is it, is it God-centered, about his character, his salvation, and then I would say in terms of reminding yourself of the gospel daily, like seek to be intentionally generous, kind, and forgiving because of the gospel. So let it not just be, as you are reminded of it, an internal thing, but an external thing so that we're more fully integrated that way. What we are doing and living out matches what we are saying that we believe but we need to be reminded daily and multiple times throughout the day of the gospel. We never move beyond our need of the gospel. It's a message for initial salvation, and as God continues to work out salvation in us and through us, we need the gospel. So that's the first thing, is we need to be reminded of the gospel. Second, because of the new reality of the resurrection, we must seek to constantly improve our understanding of the gospel. The Corinthians have known the gospel. They're standing in it, he says. But Paul reminds them, again, of its central features. He says in verse 3, For this I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Before reciting the central features of the gospel, he reminds them that the gospel is of first importance. Everything else is secondary. When he ministered among them to plant the church and nurture their young faith, the gospel was of first importance and continues to be of first importance. If the gospel is of first importance, that means that other things are not of first importance. Only one thing can be of first importance. Sometimes today we have good intentions, but we err when we give other things priority over the gospel. Sometimes even good things, but things that should be secondary. This could be worship styles. It could be philosophy of ministry. It could be membership. It could be outreaches. It could be missions or other church programs. It could be a lot of things. These are important things, but they aren't of first importance. We must keep the cart before the horse. Otherwise, all the secondary yet important matters will also be disordered and ineffective. The gospel alone is of first importance. And we could spend several sermons on the central features of the gospel that Paul illuminates here. Fortunately, we're not, unfortunately, we're not going to do that. But we do need to point out a few things. First, Christ's death and his resurrection were both in accordance with the scriptures, Paul says. Which by scriptures, he's saying the Old Testament the scriptures that they already had at that 
at that time. His death and resurrection were in accordance with the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophesied of Christ's death and resurrection in many, many places. Isaiah 53 and Psalm 16 that was read earlier are just a couple to note briefly. But of course, the prophecies were written hundreds of years before Christ took on human flesh, lived perfectly, died, raised, and ascended. And so Christ's death and resurrection testifies to the truth of the Old Testament scriptures since it was prophesied there. Second, he died for a specific reason. He died for our sins. It says that right here in verse 3, that Christ died for our sins. So his death was an atoning death. It paid for our sins. And God's just, just anger toward our sin, it paid for that. Jesus' death accomplished something. It accomplished our redemption and reconciliation to God. He died for our sins. And this, rightly so in many ways, is often the focus of our gospel. But this passage in um, 1 Corinthians 15 provides a little bit of correction to that because really in this passage, the focus is not on his death, but it's on his resurrection. And as we cited earlier, Jesus' death means nothing without his resurrection. And that's the third thing to note here about kind of the central features of the gospel. The word appear is used four times here, emphasizing who saw the resurrected Lord. So this displays the overwhelming evidence that it happened, and Paul wanted to stress that to the Corinthians. So that word appearance is important here. In light of how Paul reminds them of the gospel and its first importance, we must ask ourselves, do we hunger and thirst for a deeper and more applied understanding of the gospel? Or are we complacent and content? The gospel is remarkable because it is at the same time simple enough for all people to understand, but at the same time, it's profound enough that we can never plumb its depths. We can never understand it 100% completely, I think, on this side of heaven. That is why it is often referred to as a mystery in Scripture, particularly um, in reference to the Gentiles being included in the promises made to the Jews in the Old Testament. The gospel should cause us to stand in awe and wonder, yet at the same time yearn to understand it in a deeper way and to apply it more faithfully. 1 Peter 1.12 says about the gospel that it consists of things into which angels long to look. The scripture from 1 Peter and others aren't completely clear as to whether something of the gospel is perhaps veiled to angels. They can't see it fully. That's a possibility. But whether or not it's veiled somehow, what is clear is that the gospel is so full of glory and wonder that it's beyond our full comprehension. That is why angels long to gaze upon it, because the gospel displays the glory of God in a way that nothing else does in all of creation. As God extends mercy to sinners, God is glorified and it is beautiful. So although it's beyond our full comprehension, we obviously can grow in understanding it. So let's ask the Lord to give us an insatiable desire to treasure, understand, and apply the gospel. 
So we've seen that the gospel opens us to a whole new reality, and because of that, we're to remind ourselves of it daily and to improve our understanding of it. Third, we see that because, I'm sorry, third, we see that we're to believe as though we have personally, physically seen. As has been mentioned, the times that Jesus appeared after he resurrected are given special attention in this passage Verses 5 through 8 again say that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. It means they died, passed into death. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Despite the number of appearances here that Paul references, this isn't an exhaustive list of, of Jesus' appearances after he resurrected. But Paul does want to make it abundantly clear that Jesus' resurrection wasn't a secret, but it was very well known. He appeared to over 500, most of which were still alive when Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Since the gospel is of first importance and hinges on the resurrection, He wanted to remind them of the abundant proof of the resurrection. And just as that abundant proof was made known to them, so it is made known to us through the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. Paul emphasizes Jesus' physical appearing because he wants the Corinthians and us to see Jesus with eyes of faith. Although we have not physically seen the resurrected Lord, The goal is for our faith to be as though we have physically seen him. Jesus said to Thomas in John 20, 29, he said, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. You might remember that Thomas had difficulty believing because he had not seen. But when Jesus encounters him, he says, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. 2 Corinthians 5.7 says that we walk by faith and not by sight. All the recorded appearances of Jesus post-resurrection are recorded for us that we would have eyes of faith, that we would see spiritually as though we have physically seen his resurrected body. Um, actually, very recently, this specific passage, 1 Corinthians 15, 3-7, has given Christians even more reason to have confidence in our faith. Through the study of these verses, specifically 3-7, through it's become clear to New Testament scholars that what Paul is saying is a very, very early creed that the earliest church used. In verse 3, when Paul says that he delivered what he had received... Paul was referring to something that was set long before his own conversion. When he gives the content of the gospel, he is referring to a very early creed that the church formed to summarize, protect, and communicate the gospel. Paul is passing on a creed that significantly preceded his conversion in ministry. This is significant because it shows that the gospel is something understood by the apostles and communicated virtually right away after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. It wasn't a myth or a legend developed over time, as, as some would try to argue, but because textual study of the Greek in this passage has led scholars to understand this was a creed that was developed very early, it gives 
strong evidence to us as believers that the gospel was understood and communicated virtually right, right away. Um, one scholar about this passage also writes, um, the second major reason that scholars think this is a very early, early creed is linguistic. Paul uses words and phrases here that he uses nowhere else. Phrases such as, died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised. On the third day, he appeared. And the twelve are either only used here or, if used elsewhere, are likewise influenced by tradition. Even an atheist scholar called this discovery one of the greatest achievements of recent New Testament scholarship. Um, there are an, an incredible amount of manuscripts of the of Bible texts that are very they're dated very early, and no other document from the ancient world even comes close to the Bible in this regard. So we already have a great reason to have confidence in the Scripture. But the creed that Paul is quoting here is significant because on average, scholars date its formation and usage to within five years of Jesus' death and resurrection. Some date it to within just months of Jesus' death and resurrection. But the average is five years. Still very, very close. So the apostles understood and were communicating the gospel virtually right away. And why do I relay all this information? To increase our eyes of faith in both the scriptures and the resurrection. God wants us to have eyes of faith that were as if we had personally, physically seen the resurrected Lord. After Jesus resurrected and ascended, um, this creed makes it evident that the, again, that the apostles almost immediately understood and were communicating the gospel. What's our application from this? My application would be, don't be afraid to be a student of the resurrection or any other aspects of defending the Christian faith. Throughout my studies over the past several years, I've become increasingly convinced that the Christian worldview is intellectually strong enough to stand against whatever the world throws at it. And I want to give a particular encouragement to students in this regard. You don't have to check your brain at the door to be a Christian, which is what the world will tell you. Instead, we're to fully engage our minds in defense of Christianity. And Christianity is not only able to be defended, but it's able to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. But it does take hard work and study. It doesn't take hard work and study to hear the false beliefs of the world. They're all around us and integrated into our secular society, even schools and universities. But we must know the scriptures. We must judge all thoughts and ideas against the scriptures. So we've seen that the new reality of the resurrection means we are to remind ourselves of the gospel. We're to seek to constantly improve our understanding of the gospel. We're to believe as though we have physically seen and now we see that the new reality of the resurrection means we are to work hard, motivated by grace. Verses 9 through 11, Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. There was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, 
and you believed. The reality of the resurrection and the grace given Paul in the gospel gave Paul a desire to work hard for the Lord. But even though he worked hard, he still acknowledges that it was really God's grace operating with him and within him. If you say you have received God's grace, but aren't motivated by it to do anything of significance for the Lord or make sacrifices in joy to the Lord, I think whether you truly stand in his grace should be questioned. Paul was essentially saying that if God's grace toward you doesn't produce any fruit of action, it's in vain. And then you have to question, have you really received his grace? We don't earn God's favor through what we do, but a tree is known by its fruit. Scripture is clear about that. If there is no visible fruit, we must question, are there truly roots of faith? We can work hard for goals that have little or no eternal significance, perhaps an athletic goal or a diet, maybe a job promotion or a retirement plan. And those aren't necessarily bad things. But sometimes we can work hard for the things of this earth that have no little bearing on eternity, but how hard are we working for the Lord and for his kingdom? We can work hard after things because we have a measure of hope there. But how much more should our hope be in the resurrection? And how much more should it, as we are fueled by God's grace through the Spirit, cause us to work hard for God's kingdom? The hard work for the kingdom begins with simply reminding ourselves of the gospel and growing in our understanding of it. We need to study this book with diligence. And then doing all we can for God to use us so that people would see and experience his grace. That could be outreach or evangelism or missions or teaching in various capacities or acts of kindness and service. God has gifted you, if you're a part of his body, if you're his, he's gifted you with spiritual gifts, as we have seen in this letter. Ask him to increasingly shower you with his grace through the gospel that you may be equipped and motivated to work hard for him and his kingdom. We are called to work hard. At the same time, he gives us a Sabbath rest. He is our rest because we don't earn his favor through striving. But those two things can be pursued after at the same time. Our eternal spiritual rest in him, we don't have to earn anything. But because we have received grace, We can be motivated to work hard for him. Paul was changed by the resurrection. It was the linchpin of the gospel that opened up a whole new reality. Because of this new reality, we have seen our passage today. Four things again. Remind ourselves of the gospel. Seek to constantly improve our understanding of the gospel. Believe as though we have personally, physically seen. And then work hard, motivated by grace. The resurrection gives us a hope that is beyond the hope of this earth. And that should change everything for us. We have a new reality. It should cause us to live in a way that is countercultural in this world. The world lives for the now. As people of the kingdom, we live for eternity with assurance that we will be resurrected just as he was and that we'll be with him forever. This gives us no guilt in life and no fear in death. 
Um, as I transition to end the message, I'd like to actually um, take the opportunity to do um, something a little bit different, um, something that we probably don't do here as often as we should have, as we should do, and that's just to, um, to, to pray for a couple of people in our congregation, their family. Um, I'd like to go ahead and invite on up um, Tracy and Sarah and their family. just want to pray for you guys. Um, and this message goes, goes right along with, with where they're at, hope in, in Christ and his resurrection. Um, so to just explain a little bit as they come on up with how we can pray for them. And um, if you're in a huddle with one of these two or, or feel led to, to pray with them and for them, come on up as I kind of explain the details. Um, over the past couple of months, Sarah was, has been ex- experiencing some um, concerning physical symptoms that she didn't know where they were coming from and um, just sought to get medical understanding about what, what was happening. And um, over the past couple of weeks, it was revealed that um, Sarah very likely has a brain tumor um, in her brain stem. Um, so it's been difficult and very uncertain news for, for their family. And, um, but God is using it already in their lives and in the lives of their family. Um, it's been told that this type of brain tumor is usually um, slow growing. It can be operated on, but it's usually slow growing. And, and people um, normally live for a very long time and have very productive and um, normal lives. But the future right now is uncertain for, for her, and I know it's a he- been a heavy time for, for their family. So... Um, so we just want to take an opportunity this morning just to, um, to do what Scripture tells us to do and to pray for, for the sick. Um, we do serve a God that is able to heal, and we know that He's able to heal this morning. Um, if you remember the dates, you can pray for specifically April 3rd and April 7th. April 3rd is the next scan, and um, April 7th would be the next time you meet with the physician, I believe. And so um, we want to trust the Lord for, for healing, um, but we also want to trust that what, whatever his will is, that he would be glorified and that he would increase um, faith in Sarah and her family and even her extended family. And she was just sharing with me this morning that um, God is already using this in, in some neat ways that I think you'd shared a coworker that said that she'd opened her Bible for the first time or the first time in a long time. Um, because of what you're going through and just conversation that you've been able to have um, with her. And so we just want to come alongside them in prayer. And, and um, it's a time for us as a community and just to continue to rally around them, not just now in this moment, but um, going forward over the next months. And so um, I'll pray if there's anybody else quickly that wants to join, um, join us up here in prayer. Um, you're more than, more than welcome to do so. But um, let, me, let me pray. Father, we thank you for the hope of the resurrection, Lord, that um, causes us to enter into a new, new reality, Lord, to not live just for this earth, Lord, and the things of this earth, but to live for you and to live for eternity. And I thank you for how Tracy and Sarah have understood the gospel and been growing in the gospel here as part of our community. And um, Lord, this is tough and uncertain news. Um, 
We know you are sovereign, Lord. You're able to do all things, and we pray that you would, you would bring healing, Lord. We pray that you would heal. We pray this in faith. We know that you're able. We know that you do still bring miraculous healings today. And so we pray that you would. Lord, we pray that during this process that you would increase faith, Lord, that you would increase fellowship with you, Lord. We know that that is something that you do through our trials as you increase our fellowship with you. And we thank you that you are a God that is familiar with suffering. Lord, you're familiar because you had human flesh here on this earth. You're familiar with our weakness, Lord. And so we can come to you boldly knowing that you are sympathetic towards us. You understand both the weakness of our sin and the weakness of our physical bodies. So I pray again, this will be a time of increased faith, increased fellowship with you. Help us as a church body to surround them well in prayer. Help us as a church body, not only to care for them well, but others among our midst that need, need care, something that we want to continue to grow in and do a better job of. Lord, I pray for their kids as well, that you would um, increase faith for them during this time of your love, of your kindness, of your presence with, with them and with their family. Um, Lord, we again just uh, thank you that we will be healed whether on this earth or in the time to come, Lord, when we're with you. Your resurrection has made that certain. And it's in the hope of the resurrection that we pray. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our sins are many, but his mercy is more. Praise the Lord. I'd like to leave you with this from John, 1 John 3, 2. Through, um, sorry, verses... 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Got it. It says this. It says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared But we know that when he appears, that means when he returns or we go to be with him, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So go out in the confidence that knowing that you are God's child now and go out and live in the confidence and hope of the resurrection that we shall be like him. We shall be made 100% completely new. You are sent.